The writer of the book of Hebrews describes the Word of God as living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and that the Word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so recognize that as we read the Word of God, the Word of God is reading us too. Listen now to God's holy and inerrant Word. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Gracious Heavenly Father, you give good gifts to your children, and then we are enabled to give a portion back to you. We pray that you would use these tithes and offerings for the ministry of Grace Community Church and for the advancement of your kingdom. And as we prepare to spend time in your word, please take away the distractions. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are attentive to you. And we pray that this time would draw us closer to our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, children ages 3 through 6 are now dismissed for Children's Church. And as we're doing that, I'll uh, introduce our our guest pastor. I'm guessing that there are many of you here who know Les Newsom. Les is no stranger to this pulpit, and we're delighted to have him back. Uh, His affiliation with, uh, with this congregation actually started some time back when he was the RUF campus minister at the University of Memphis, and then continued on through his time as campus minister uh, down at Ole Miss. And Les is now an area coordinator for RUF Mid-South, covering Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, West Tennessee. Yes? Got it. All right. And we are delighted to have him here with us this morning. Les, thank you for bringing the word before us. That was impressive. I can barely remember where I'm supposed to be most of the time. Uh, It would probably help you this morning to have your Bibles open to John chapter 6, verse 52 and following. Uh, I won't read it again since uh, we've already had a chance to look at that passage. While you're you're turning there, whenever I get a chance to come and uh, speak, uh, especially on Sunday mornings to people who have been so gracious to the ministry of Reformed University Fellowship, I always want to come and say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do. Uh, it's great to see faces of former students that are now a part of God's church. And I, I like to look at all of you and say, like, this was the point. <laughs> this was what we were doing, uh, seeing God's church built uh, and expand and grow and push back the kingdom because of what we're doing here. Um, and I would simply encourage, for those of you who, who don't, are not aware, uh, the denomination for which this church is a part uh, has from its very beginning had a desire to reach college campuses for Christ. 
and equip those students to serve here in churches. And so we like to always tell you that we, in our UF, are, as it were, your arm uh, reaching out to the various universities across, uh, across our country. Uh, when I started here, this is just to make the old people, this is for me and Pat, this to feel older, but, uh, but you know, when we started RUF, the University of Memphis, RUF Memphis was the, um, the 26th RUF in the entire country, 26th. Uh, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, this fall we pushed somewhere past uh, 130 campuses. Uh, our expansion out into the west has been dramatic. Our expansion up into the northeast. And actually, uh, two weekends from now, my plan is to be with the uh, RUF Fall Conference from, uh, from Harvard, uh, MIT, <laughs> uh, uh, Boston College, and somewhere in Vermont, another school up there. So, so pray for those students' disappointment. Um, when they find out who their speaker is for the two weekends. But there's a sense in which that's, that's just amazing to me. Uh, 1973, there's a, a strange little man who is starting a Bible study down at the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And now here we are some 40-some-odd years later, and God is reaching out to all of these campuses uh, with ministries. And so it's your prayers that make that possible. It's your financial support that makes that possible. And so, so ends my little commercial of thank you for uh, what we do. I, I think every time I come, I always try to emphasize the fact that working with college students is gratifying on a number of levels. That's the reason why I'm starting my 22nd year in campus ministry, because the way in which campus college students don't let you get by with uh, religious uh, explanations for things that don't actually make sense to their daily lives. This is my favorite thing. Something even as simple as saying that the essence of Christianity is to have a relationship with God through Christ. As simple as that statement sounds to you and familiar as it is, college tends to be that time where someone says, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a very religious phrase. But be honest, what do you mean when you say that we are to be connected to or be in relationship with someone who by your own admission left some 2,000 years ago after his earthly ministry. How? What do we mean when we say that we are connected to Jesus? What do we mean when we say that we are united to him? The theologian uh, inside you will remember that phrase, union with Christ. What in the world could we possibly mean to the watching world when we say that we feel so deeply connected to Jesus in the way in which he describes it? Well, the interesting thing about this is, is when you pose that question to the New Testament, you actually don't get what I think sometimes some of us would like. And and, In Presbyterian circles, this is sort of what we do. We're like, well, did someone write a treatise on this? Like, was there a, a, a volume that was written, you know, by one of the apostles that could, that could spell this out in very systematic and clear-minded ways? Of course, it turns out that there's not. What rather you get from the New Testament is Jesus and his disciples dropping on us, as it were, living metaphors. In other words, he doesn't sit down and say, well, let's look at the examination of the microscope of what I mean when I say I'm connected to you. Rather, he ends up saying stuff like what he just said in John chapter 6. And it's 
over the top. (laughs) Because Jesus is trying to say there is something in the very familiar activity of eating food that I would like my followers to connect to what it means to be connected to me. Does that make sense? That was my summary statement. So don't don't lose that in the midst of the conversation. It was years ago, actually here in Memphis, when I was in college, uh, I, I worked with, uh, with Central Church that I drove past on my way in this morning, um, and uh, was working in the youth department there. And it was the first time I ever had the power of, of food sort of brought home to me when I was taking a young man home from youth group who, by anyone's estimation, was going through a horrible time. Uh, in the last calendar year prior to this event, um, he had uh, lost his uh, father to a long illness. Uh, he had a brother who had made an attempt at suicide, trying to live in the face of the loss of his father, and a sister who had plunged into depression herself. But whenever we would interact with this young man about this, the only thing that we could get out of him was this, this very contrived and artificial, no, 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 everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's really all sad. But no, I'm doing okay. Of course, we knew it wasn't okay. And we tried very desperately to sort of at least to get this guy to open up about what was going on inside of him. One particular evening as we were driving home, we were, we, in, in very unplanned by me, I was like, you know, hey, let's go, get some, let's go get some ice cream. And so we stopped off by the Baskin Robbins down there over in the Balmoral Center, at least where it used to be. And I remember taking forever to try to talk him into getting whatever he wanted. And, and he got for himself in the end one of these big, like, 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 like chocolate brownie sundaes. You know what I'm talking about? It's got the, the brownie inside and like three scoops of ice cream and the, the whipped cream and a whole nine yards. And so we, so we finally got it and sort of sat back in the car while I drove him home. And for some reason, as soon as he sat down and started working on that ice cream, and I mean, it was moving too. He was pounding that thing with all the energy. The most amazing thing happened. Y'all, the kid cracked like a nut. Until if, uh, t- 10 minutes into the drive, he was like, and then, you know, all of a sudden I realized that my dad wasn't doing very well. And I started trying to figure out what I was going to do after that. And then my brother got that. It just all started coming out. A couple of years later, I had a counselor, a therapist friend of mine, tell me that that actually is a normal occurrence. That sometimes when things are so churning and so lost on the inside, sometimes that anxiety needs to be transferred into something, like food. And in the mere act of eating, you'll find that there's sort of a window that gets opened into what's really going on inside the soul. Ooh, that really opens this passage up, I think. I think that Jesus would like for us to realize that our food is a bigger part of our life than we probably now imagine and as a window into all kinds of things. And so I just want to look this morning at three various aspects. <coughs> Bear with me. I'm recovering from this cold that I had in the last two weeks, but it's, it's, it's going away, trust me. Three things. I think Jesus tells us about the significance of mealtime. I think it's a window, number two, into the problem with our food. But then finally, gives us an insight into what it means to really savor Jesus. The significance of mealtime, the problem with our food, and the savoring of Jesus. First of all, notice first of all the context of this passage, which is in the larger frame of the entire scripture, a Bible that is really 
amazing in it the way it represents and understands food and eating. Have you ever stopped to think about how many huge biblical events happen around meals? There was a friend of mine in seminary who wrote a paper on the theology of the meal, <laughs> which it's okay for you to think, well, I guess that's the kind of things you do when you're in seminary. Um, <laughs> But think about this. If you, if you have any interest in the Bible at all, this is significant. First of all, we find that the great fall, the great cosmic car wreck of the fall happens over a meal. Does it not? Eating food. We find later on that God institutes a very special meal for his people to remember their escape from Egypt. Called what? The Passover meal. When Jesus sort of arrives in the New Testament, I had one commentator who brought up the fact that it's amazing how often when Jesus' major events or sermons happen in his life, he is either at, uh, going to, or leaving from a meal. Little wonder that at the end of his earthly ministry, he left his people with a remembrance of him that is, you guessed it, a meal. The Lord's Supper that we celebrate periodically here at this church. Finally, we find at the very end of the Bible that all of human history will actually close with the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, the Bible recognizes that food, significant things happen when we surround ourselves around a meal. And so Jesus is picking up on this so common and yet sort of annoying activity of life called eating. And he says, if you can have a grasp over what it's like to take something. Eating is weird. Have you ever thought about this for a second? I want you to take this and I want you to stick it inside your body. And I want you to bring it inside your body so that there, as it's inside... It can unleash all kinds of power and potential in your life. And that sounds familiar. That's food. And Jesus is saying, I want to be to you the same thing that food is for your body. In other words, I would like for you to make a connection mentally between the way in which you consume food for energy and the way in which you consume me for real life. For my body, Jesus says, is true food. He's not saying that food is not food. He's saying that if you really want to see the end of your food, if you want to see what your food is pointing to, if you want to see what mealtime is really about, in the capital A sense, you've got to find it in me. One quick word of application before we go into the next point. I think if there's If there's anything we can say about this, I think it means that Jesus is resisting attempts to superficialize him in a person's life. Jesus does not work well in your life if you attempt to make him a spoke on the wheel of your life. He does not function very well as an appendage to your existence. Rather, he's saying, I am what I am, and the relationship that I'm going to forge between us is not really what I intended to be until I get inside. Some of you, my guess is, are exhausted by this. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know he wants to get inside. And he's been renovating that inside ever since. He won't let me get away with anything. 
He won't let me, he won't let me stay satisfied in anything until I find it in him. For others of you, it'll be an explanation for why this whole Christianity thing is not working out. Because indeed, we've tried to keep him in the safe regions of our lives. He's much more manageable as someone that we attend to on Sunday mornings, is he not? But he resists that because he says, look, you don't have true life until you eat my flesh and you drink my blood. It's only when I get inside that you see the significance of mealtime is that Jesus wants to take his place there. That's the first point. Secondly, though, and you can't help but hint from it, can you? There's a problem with our eating, isn't there? You cannot talk about food until you t- without talking about how difficult food can be. And by the way, I think actually the, uh, the, um, Jesus' followers get this. We didn't read this portion in the interest of time. But if you go on to the sections after this, you find that many of Jesus' followers leave him after this little speech. <laughs> A couple of verses down, you get the disciples who are going, um, this is hard. <laughs> and some of them are kind of like, uh, this has been great, uh, but I really don't want to be a part of you. And you, you would be tempted to ask the question, why? Well, I don't know. It might have something to do with the fact that this leader that you're following just said, if you really want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. My guess is that probably would have been like, oh, good, all right, this has been wonderful. We're done with this whole Jesus thing. What in the world are you talking about? The Pharisees don't get it either. They walk away sort of, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What are you possibly talking about? And the funny thing is, is Jesus, this is not a throwaway statement. This is like the, the third or fourth time in John 6 where Jesus has said something like this. Like he, He's not going to let you just sort of dismiss this. It just keeps digging it in. Why? Because what Jesus is showing us is that when food, when we relate to food, we begin to find something inside of us that is a problem. And food gives us this. Do we not always have this problem of either (coughs) ignoring food on the one hand or abusing it? That seemed to be always the the two uh, extremes. Uh, And the funny thing is, it occurred to me on the way up, (coughs) bear with me, (coughs) Like I said, I'm getting better. It occurred to me on the way up that you never really know how much a problem food is until you try to control it. I never knew I had a problem with food until I tried to go on a diet. And I found myself actually, a couple of years ago, you know, in your 40s, you look up and you're like, you know, my body's now working against me. Perhaps I had, perhaps I had better do something about this. And so you start some exercise and you start to diet. And I remember facing my chief weakness in life, which is the the Little Debbie snack cake. Let's be honest. Is there anything more tempting than that? And I found myself going to the refrigerator. We always sort of cooled ours so they're nice and chilled. We're not one of those Swiss cake rule peoples. We were the, we were the, <laughs> you know those people, the Swiss cake rule people. We were the chocolate chip snack cake. I'm talking about with the white icing on the outside, the, the chocolate cake in the center, the little chocolate chips on the top. It's almost lunchtime. Bear with me. But we would stick them in the refrigerator where they get just perfectly cold. And I remember standing in front of the refrigerator and actually having this conscious thought race through my head in the midst of my diet. It went something like this. Well, you know, I'm so tired of having this Little Debbie snack cake. 
as a temptation, I'm just going to go ahead and eat it to get rid of the temptation. <laughs> now, that is, that's insane is what that is. That's completely false. In other words, when we get into the realm of food, it's amazing how quickly rationality goes right out the door. I, I remember talking to someone about, um, th- this was the anniversary for Katrina this last August, and I was speaking with some people from New Orleans and about, um, who had lived through that. And they were saying, you know, there was a lot of people that were very critical of the chaos that New Orleans descended into in the wake of that uh, disaster. But he said, you know something, I think if every single grocery store in Memphis suddenly had no food, uh, you might get a little bit of crazy that would come out of people, maybe even in this very room. Deny someone food, and the crazy will come back out. I I, I was a campus minister uh, at Old Miss for about 12 years, and so there were a lot of conversations I had with with Old Miss students, especially females, about the struggle for eating disorders, to get through eating disorders. And I remember one young lady explained to me one time, it was a fascinating conversation. She said, you know, I'm so tired of being tyrannized by food. She said, because every time I sit down to eat a meal, it's never about that meal. It's always about what this me- meal means about the next meal. You ever thought about that? Like, I can't enjoy this meal because the truth is, I'm just going to eat a little bit here. I'm going to eat a salad now because tonight I can really go to town. Or, oh, if I ate that tonight, well, I, I just, I'll just skip dinner tonight. And she said, I suddenly realized that I was never enjoying any one meal because I was always thinking about and preoccupied with what that meal meant. Our food exercises tyranny over us for a reason that I think actually is biblical. Because God is saying something that is so intimate and so near and so part of your regular daily warp and woof, it's going to open up something in your soul where you realize there's a problem. That my desires are misordered. They are disordered. They are mixed up. They are confused. That even my longings for something as natural as just sustaining myself with a meal is trying to scream at me every single day, there is something wrong with you. I would even say that our our food and our intake of food can say, can open up a, a world of hurt that lies just below the surface. Is not our food a window to internal struggles? So much so that Jesus says the hurt that's inside of you is actually only going to ease. It's only going to subside when you truly learn to savor me. In other words, the problem with your food is not necessarily that you have not paid enough attention to it. Even though all those that are involved in lower education and try to educate people on the rightness of food, of course that's helpful. But Jesus is saying it's not an over-dependence upon food that has caused the problems that you have with food. Rather, it's the failure to set food in its right context. And that is that it only really satisfies when you have first been satisfied with me. Which leads me to the third and final point. I think Jesus is saying that when we see that he is true food and he is true drink, it releases us to enjoy not just our mealtime, but everything. 
So what does it mean? Jesus is saying, if you want to really be satisfied with your life, then you must feast on me and be satisfied. My friend, uh, good friend Brian Haybig, uh, is the pastor of um, downtown Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, Brian and I were talking about a, a great story, uh, and he used it as a sermon illustration actually sometime later. I listened to his, I listened to his podcast because they're fantastic. Um, he tells a story about going down into the Mississippi Delta with a friend for, for a, um, oh, what do they call it? It was, it, was, it was the time in which you, at the end of hunting season, go to your freezer and you decide that rather letting all that meat go to spoil, you're just going to cook it all, you know? And to have, you have everybody over for this huge deal. And so Brian says he goes to this, this event and it's just unbelievable, I mean, there's just food everywhere, every kind of meat you can imagine being prepared in every particular way that you can, you know, eight, ten people or so just going to town on this food. And he said at the very end of the evening, he found himself sitting on the couch, you know, sort of just like splayed out like this, and with his friend sitting right next to him, and his friend looked over and goes, Brian, I think I'm meat drunk. <laughs> and Brian says... I don't think I ever knew what it was like to really put a, put a name on that sort of sense of deep satisfaction when you get to the end of the meal and you feel as if you are just meat drunk, like the food has taken over you, that there's a depth to your satisfaction. To which Brian's rhetorical question was, have we ever had a moment where we have associated the feelings and sensation of a meal being deeply satisfying with Jesus being deeply satisfying. Not not does this occur every day, not does it occur every Sunday at church, but has it ever occurred? Has there ever been a time where I've not looked at Jesus in terms of his exercised tyranny over me for how well a Christian I've been that week? But rather looking at him as saying, no matter what happens with me or with my circumstances, I have found him to be deeply satisfying. Jesus is saying, I would like for you to make the association between the physical sensation of being deeply satisfied with your food and the spiritual sensation of being deeply satisfied with me. There's the connection. But here's my college students. We finally come to their question. Somewhere back there, there's a college student saying, okay, okay, but you've lapsed into rhetoric there, preacher boy. (laughs) What do you mean, satisfied with him? How do you be satisfied with him? What does it mean to say that I have looked to Jesus and I see in him the same spiritual sensation of being meat drunk? Well, I think Jesus actually hints at it in the passage, but we have to sort of dial back a little bit and see the gospel of John from a totality. Because what Jesus is going to go on and do is he's going to say, please understand that by feasting on me, by eating my flesh and by drinking my blood, we are creating a connection And that is that there is a connection between me and my Father. In other words, as I and my Father are one, you will be one with me when you feast on me. But having feasted on me, you then can have the same oneness with my Father that I enjoy. 
wow. That's another sermon for another time, isn't it? Mind blown. (laughs) That kind of union with God. But here's the thing. Don't miss the sense. Because every time you start to pose the Bible that question, to think, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So I am going to be the receptor of the relationship that exists between God and Jesus. So then tell me how it is that God feels about his son. Ooh, that's a really good question. Because every single time that God the Father gets a speaking part in the New Testament, you know what he's doing? He's doting over his son. Every single time. At the cloud of transfiguration, what happens? The cloud comes down. And Peter and the other disciples hear the voice saying, this is my son. Hear him. Listen to him. I place my seal of approval on him. At Jesus' baptism, there's actually a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove, they said. But then there's a great voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son and I am so pleased with him. Now look, don't don't forget the calculus. Jesus is saying that feasting on me, being satisfied with me, is going to be dependent upon knowing how satisfied I am in you because of what I did on the cross. That's the big, that was the big phrase. That's worth going, let's let's do that again. (laughs) Jesus is saying, look, I am about in just a few chapters to go to the cross where I will literally spill my blood. And in that place, I'm going to offer my flesh for you to eat as, as a spiritual presence, you know, Sunday in and Sunday out. I'm going to offer that because it's all going to be a demonstration to tell you to let you know how acceptable you are to me because of what I've done in the cross. Whew. Jesus comes to offer us, and then he looks and says, as it were, the proof of the pudding is in the tasting to come and eat. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We could do a whole sermon on the way in which we need to begin to look at our prayer time and our scripture reading before God as meal time. Wouldn't that be interesting? That's another sermon for another time. But I actually feel like we've got the most beautiful image in the Lord's Supper, do we not? There's a foodie writer. You've got to call them foodies these days. He's a foodie. Named Nigel Slater. Came across this great illustration while I was studying for this where he was writing about the evening of his mother's funeral. He had lost his, um, his mother when he was a teenager. And uh, he says, The night after my mom's funeral, I saw two little white marshmallows on my bedside table. I had never been allowed to eat in bed, and when my father came upstairs to tuck me in, I asked if they were for me. Of course they are. I know that they're your favorites. In a short essay that I had written before my mother's death, I had described to my teacher that I felt marshmallows to be the nearest food to a kiss. Soft, sweet, and tender. My father made certain, listen to this, my father made certain that each night for the next two years that I was sure to find two, sometimes three, fluffy, sugary marshmallows on my bedside table so as to help me remember that it was my mother's good night kissed kiss that i really missed more than anything 
I think that's a beautiful illustration for what Jesus is saying in the Lord's Supper. He said, because here in the bread and in the wine that we, that we take, it's the nearest human analog to a kiss from the Father. It's not a begrudged ceasefire, but rather a genuine connection, a real kiss. That here we find in Him a place where we are safe and a place where He has given us the rights of sons. You know, um, I live in a house of picky eaters. My wife takes the blame for it, though she doesn't deserve near as much blame as, as, as I do, I'm sure. Um, but my youngest is a picky eater. I actually talked to Luke about whether I could use this illustration. He gave me the permission. So my 11-year-old gave me two thumbs up for this. But you know, mealtime... And I know there's some of you parents out there that are like, well, you know, I can help you cure that, uh, that uh, picky eating. If you could leave your advice to the side for just a moment. I don't need to be hyper-parented at this moment. But, you know, it got, it's gotten to be where mealtime, it, it was just hard, you know, because every time there's a length to the meal that, they just, that they're not eating, it's too hard. Um, and, you know, for the early part of Luke's life, I got what I think was an appropriate emotional response, which is just sort of a gritting of the teeth and looking at me just sort of irritated. I choke this food down. In some ways that was appropriate, but y'all, about, about three years ago, it, it, it turned. And what instead of seeing resentment on my son's face, what I saw was, a, was almost a straining sense of, of anxious compliance. In other words, he was trying to force these meals down to, to please me. Whew. And you know what happened about two and a half years ago? It's fun when I talked to Luke about this. He was like, you did quit talking about mealtime. Um, I decided to shut up about mealtime. A, I don't think my children are going to starve. And B, I honestly think that I would rather him grow up with scurvy than to go another meal thinking that his father disapproves of him. See, I was making it worse. Meals were difficult for him. They're uncovering for my son a hurt that only Jesus can satisfy. And I was making it worse through my disapproval. Look, the joy, though, the good news of this morning, and I'll finish with this, is that Jesus doesn't have to choose between good health and his children's joy. Jesus is not faced with my dilemma because he supplied both in his body and his blood. That's worth thinking about. Even as we go to celebrate the Lord's Supper occasionally, maybe even to have our Sunday meal today, that we might see and be satisfied with Jesus because of his satisfaction with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our heads are bowed. We close our eyes to take distraction away. But as we do, Father, and the thoughts of our hearts turn towards you, all of which you know, you hear us pray to ourselves as if it were a regular conversation. I pray that you would hear from the hearts of all of these people a great longing 
We, we know what it means to be hungry for a meal. We probably all are even at this moment. But we also know that our food has been a problem, that it never satisfies. Nothing ever does. Not our jobs, not our spouses, not our children's successes, not our parents' protection. Nothing ever comes close. So may we even in this last song drink deeply of you, that as we offer to you a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips to you, maybe somewhere in that moment we might catch a glimpse of your smile. We might actually see that your cross is better than we thought that it was, that your provision for us more complete than we ever dared dream. And that, Father, we might walk out of here meat drunk, <laughs> drunk on the thought that you were more than enough, more than a match for my sin, more than a match for my years of callousness, and are able to save us to the uttermost. Father, even for the soul who may realize that they have never known you thusly, would you draw them to yourself as well? That this morning might be an occasion of you drawing all men to yourself because you are high and lifted up. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.